are two histories of physics, the stories physicists like to tell about their subject's past and the real story. I've often been told that by leading historians of physics, no less often than I've heard physicists complain that historians don't know enough about physics to understand properly the subject's past. You know, I regret this tension between historians and physicists. Over the past few decades, I've come to believe that they have a lot to teach each other. I'm a trained physicist, and I, for one, have a reflex mistrust of the potted histories of physics presented in most physics books. But I've come to love reading the works of top-notch physics historians. My name is Graham Farmlow, author of the new book, The Universe Speaks in Numbers, which features quite a bit of history, much of it guided by the advice of Simon Schaffer, based at Cambridge. I've rarely met a historian of science who can match his erudition, eloquence and bracing directness, all on dazzling display in an interview I recorded with him in his office last December. I wanted him to give us a quick summary of the key developments that led to the flowering of theoretical physics in the mid-19th century. We have to start somewhere, so I asked him to begin with Isaac Newton, once the Lucasian professor of mathematics at Cambridge, who wrote his Principia in a room that now overlooks Heffer's bookstore, only a short walk from Simon's office. I began by asking Simon why Newton is such a crucial figure in the story of how we come to describe the natural world using mathematical laws. There are many reasons why Newton is so significant when you're thinking about the relationship between mathematical methods and studies of the natural world. The clue, in a way, is in the title of his masterpiece, mm -hmm. The Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy. The first thing to realise is that that would have struck readers as astonishing. The idea that natural philosophy has mathematical principles was a new idea. So natural yeah. philosophy for Newton and for his contemporaries is the study of the natural world, specifically, since we're in the 17th century, and we're with Newton, mm. the study of the world that God has made. Yeah. And that becomes important immediately, because for Newton, since this is a created world, it must be a world susceptible to reason. There must be principles that explain it, mm -hmm. because it is the result of a wise, powerful plan. So Newton never doubted that the world has reasons and never doubted, being Isaac Newton, <laughs> that he could divine what those reasons were. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but the traditional, orthodox, classical form of natural philosophy in Newton's university, the University of Cambridge in the 1660s, was still fundamentally based on the principles of Aristotle, mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. classical Greek yeah. philosophy. Mm -hmm. And for Aristotle and his commentators and disciples, there was a necessary gap mm -hmm. between the work of mathematics and the truths of natural philosophy, because mathematics dealt in pure forms, where the world as we experience it is a mixture, it's hybrid, it's impure, and therefore it wasn't obviously the case to Aristotelian's eyes that abstract mathematics would have any fundamental role. It would clearly have uses, mm. but it might not have any fundamental role at all in making sense of the world that we see around us. For Newton, things were very, very 
different. Mm -hmm. For Newton, God is a mathematician and mm -hmm. a great one. And therefore, the task that he set himself in composing the work between 1684 and 1687 was to write down and unfold those mathematical principles on whose basis this created world was summoned into existence and by which it ran. The other reason, it seems to me always, why Newton must play an absolutely central, if not the central role, in anything we have to say about the relationship between maths and the study of nature, is that he was so committed, and by the likes of his times, so unusually and originally committed, to the accumulation of numerical data. Newton spent a great deal of time and energy on collating numerical observations of as great precision as he could find in the existing records available to him. Records of mariners, missionaries, travellers, other observers, and his own amazingly accurate work. These would include observations of the positions of comets, planets, satellites, um, observations of the heights of the tides, data on the position of the moon, um, measurements of the length of pendulums that beat at the rate of one second. All of this data hmm. is then incorporated into his work, into the Principia Mathematica. Just let me interject a second, though. I mean, people say that Newton was occasionally just a little bit free and easy with the use of that data. He wasn't to be like a saint in this, though, was he? He wasn't saying that his theories would die if the sword of nature opposed them. No. Uh, for Newton, I think what's absolutely fascinating in historical terms is that there's a sense in which he doesn't really have a very strong notion of experimental error. In other words, for Newton, it was absolutely necessary to show, and this is what the final of the three books that went into the Principia is entirely devoted to showing, mm -hmm. that the predictions he can extract from his mathematical models are exactly the same as the best observational data. Mm -hmm. In order to achieve that identity, for example, an identity between his calculation of the heights of tides and the heights of tides as they're observed everywhere from the Bristol Channel to Cape Horn and Vietnam, he had to throw out some inconvenient observations right. and he had to manipulate the theoretical model. And in each case, he spent a lot of work making the model and the data match just as well as he could. The great biographer of Newton, R.S. Westfall, wrote an article about what Newton was doing that Westfall called, magnificently perhaps, Newton and the fudge factor, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. in order to draw attention to the intensity, to put it no more strongly than that, mm. with which Newton would change both the parameters of his model and the kind of data he was working with to make sure that they matched Exactly. But nonetheless, you do consider him the precursor of the currently accepted view that scientists should produce a theory and test it against its most accurate experiments. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, what Newton does, and here the comparison would be with his immediate and perhaps most important predecessor, Descartes. I mean. Descartes had produced a book called The mm. Principles of mm. Philosophy, mm -hmm 
What Newton then does is to produce a book called The Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, focusing on that. Mm. And one of Newton's criticisms of Cartesian science, precisely, is that it cannot deliver quantitative explanations or predictions. And what Newton did was to construct an abstract, general, gravitational model of how any orbiting body moves, mm -hmm. apply it to this solar system, derive extremely precise predictions of the positions of each of the planets, compare those predictions with Flamsteed's numbers and show the reader that they were the same. Right, right. That method mm -hmm. is novel. It's not unprecedented, but it's novel yeah. in the 17th century. And what is new is its global reach. All of the solar system mm -hmm. will be treated this way. And by implication, all the stars too. So Newton, in later editions of the Principia, extends these kinds of arguments, not just to our solar system, but to every star, mm. and, as he imagines, all the planets orbiting around other stars, mm -hmm. where, of course, he doesn't have data. But his success with this model mm. allows him to do something really no one had done before, which is to claim that there is a single mathematically described precise force based in dynamics that completely predicts all the numerical data we see. Newton famously wrote to his archenemy Robert Hooke that if he'd seen further than others, it was because he'd stood on the shoulders of giants. That phrase was apparently first coined in the 12th century by the French philosopher and scholar Bernard of Chartres, though Newton often gets credit for it. Some historians suspect that Newton's comment was a nasty, sly allusion to the physique of Hooke, who had a slight build and who'd been afflicted by curvature of the spine when he was a boy. It seems clear that Newton was to some extent standing on the shoulders of the great astronomer and mathematician Galileo. I asked Simon Schaffer, what was Galileo's role in the story? Newton's relation with Galileo is extremely complicated. He very rarely mentions Galileo. He very rarely cites him. Mm. And yet, without Galilean mechanics, no Newton. Mm. Um, what that shows us is that by the time Newton began actually writing the Principia, which is the 1680s, rather heartwarmingly, Newton is in his 40s at that point. Mm. Um, so not a young man by any means. Mm. Galilean mechanics has become common sense. So one reason why Newton doesn't have to name Galileo very often is because it's not new. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, mm -hmm. it's, it's become institutionalised in the science of mechanics of the so period. You could say he was famous among natural philosophers. He was yeah. fantastically famous. He was oh. the most famous oh, okay. um, mathematical philosopher and astronomer of the 17th century mm. uh, for many different reasons. Okay. His persecution is certainly one of them. Mm -hmm. um, but also it was widely accepted in England that it was Galileo who had demonstrated the truth of heliocentrism and the Copernican system, mm -hmm. that it was Galileo who had given the first adequate account of how ballistics works, of how projectiles mm -hmm. move, mm -hmm. that it was Galileo 
who'd offered the first satisfactory mathematical model of the motion of bodies. Yep. And that's all incorporated into Newton's Principia. But not mentioned in Galileo. But not mentioned in Galileo very much. Now, what is a surprise, I think, to many people is that uh, Newton didn't finish his life having totally finished the programme, had he? Not at all. Right. There are major problems in the Principia that are simply not resolvable it turns out, by the methods Newton has available to him, Mm -hmm. notably the motion of the moon. Mm -hmm. Because Newton brilliantly demonstrates that the moon's motion is affected both by the position of the sun and by the position of the earth. It's therefore a three-body problem. And to get an exact or even viable mathematical account of lunar motion out Mm -hmm. from Newton's principles turned out to be beyond him. Mm That mattered hugely, and one reason it mattered, which may not be obvious to us now, Mm. is that if you had a perfected theory of the moon, then you could produce a book predicting the future positions of the moon against the background of the fixed stars Mm -hmm. for each night, and if you had such a book, then you could determine where you were east or west of some astronomical observatory like Greenwich. In other words, a perfect theory of the moon would solve the problem of longitude. Newton knew that. And one of the reasons he was working on lunar theory was because of its uses for navigation. He was aware that this problem remained unsolved. Another problem, perhaps more metaphysical, more philosophical, within the Principia that will become extremely important in the future history of astronomy, mechanics and physics, is Newton's puzzle about the cause of gravity. All matter gravitates, Newton says. Mm, mm -hmm. If that's true, and it's an absolutely unmovable premise Mm. of his mathematical physics, Mm. then there is no material cause of gravity. Mm. Because if all matter gravitates, nothing material can cause gravity. So it looked to a lot of Newton's readers as if he'd summoned into existence a piece of magic. Leibniz, his great interlocutor and critic, just calls it magic. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a force whose mathematical workings, Leibniz acknowledged, Mm -hmm. has been completely described by Newton, but whose physical reality Mm -hmm. remains entirely in doubt. Mm -hmm. This is a force without a cause. Mm -hmm. Newton himself, in private, talking to his disciples, would tend to say that God is the cause of gravity, Mm -hmm. that it's divine action Mm -hmm. that keeps the world machine going. Mm -hmm. This is not a satisfactory answer Mm -hmm. for natural philosophers, people we would call mathematical physicists. Mm -hmm. And it's not, after all, until long afterwards, roughly 1916, (coughs) that anybody is going to come up with an account of the causal basis of gravity that is fully satisfactory in scientific terms. Physicists today often give Newton all the credit for setting up the program to test the law of gravity in the cosmos. But this does an injustice to the many natural philosophers and mathematicians across the English Channel in France who essentially completed the program. What was their contribution? When we think of Newtonian science, especially Newtonian physics, we tend, because we've been trained in this, to think of a series of fundamental equations forces mass by acceleration, uh, and so on. Uh, We don't find equations like that in the Principia. That's not how Newton presents the argument. Mm. It's not until the uh, late 1700s, especially through the work of Laplace, Pierre-Simon Laplace, 
working in Paris, that you get a Newtonian system of the world that is recognisable as the modern Newtonian classical system, which uses analytical calculus to describe the motion of bodies, especially planets, comets and satellites, mm. and which gives a completely exhaustive account of the whole of the solar system. So Laplace and his allies in Paris between the 1770s and the 1790s are the builders of what we now call mm. the Newtonian system of the world. Mm -hmm. The mathematical techniques matter hugely. What Laplace and his closest ally Lagrange were able to do was to refine analysis, refine uh, calculus to such an extent that they were able to show that differential algebra completely captures mm -hmm. the mechanical and ballistic motion of the whole of the world system. And not only that, but as Laplace showed in 1796 in his masterpiece, Celestial Mechanics, mm -hmm. he was able to show that the entire solar system, if the only force acting is gravity, is stable forever. The position of every object, every particle in mm -hmm. that system mm -hmm. will oscillate around mean values mm -hmm. over immensely long periods of time. But the entire system, if that's the only dynamics in play, is stable. And that required new mathematics, including the Lagrangian, to make sense of how you could show that. It's for that reason that when Napoleon was presented with the work, he's alleged to have said, Monsieur Laplace, I see that in your book you make no mention of God, and Laplace is alleged to have replied, Sire, I have no need of that hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And that's the great contrast with Newton yeah. himself. Mm -hmm. um, that the Newtonian worldview that we now think of as the great triumph of classical mechanics applied to the entire universe and to the solar system in, in particular is a late 18th century French achievement. Mm. It's a world without God's intervention, without any sign of creative order. It's a world in which the dynamics of a single force obeying a single law with respect to distance, subject to analytical calculus, mm. can be shown to explain all the motions of all bodies whatsoever. And it was on that basis that Laplace proclaims in his um, other great book, The System of the World, a program, which we should call the Laplacean program, which would take all the other phenomena in nature, mm. electricity, chemistry, mm. sound, mm. heat, mm. light, and reduce them to the same mathematical simplicity mm -hmm. and in principle, magnificently, the same force law mm. as the law that governs mechanics. Mm -hmm. So Laplace's other great ally, Charles Coulomb, is the man who demonstrated that the electrostatic force law is also an inverse square. Very good news for the Laplaceans. Mm. In principle, you ought therefore, they thought, to be able to reduce the whole of electricity and magnetism to something that would look like gravitation. Yeah, yeah. You should be able to do that for chemistry using exactly the same mathematics. Mm. Claude Berthollet did that mm. in a book called Chemical Stabs. Yeah. <laughs> and um, the similar kinds of enterprise in heat and in optics. 
optics was going to be described as an infinite system of tiny particles subject to short-range attractive and repulsive forces of a Newtonian kind. Mm. And Etienne Malou uh, set out to essentially reduce the whole of optics to that kind of mathematics. Mm. Mm. So by the 1810s, it really looked to the Laplacians in Napoleon's capital of Paris as if the whole of physical science yeah. could be reduced to a single set of mathematical principles. Mm. And yet it turned out to be quite difficult, and, electricity and magnetism yes. in particular. Yes, and yeah. heat and optics. Yeah. Um, so the next generation, who, as it were, had grown up mm. with the Laplacian hegemony, mm. rebel against it. Mm -hmm. It's perhaps not a complete coincidence that when Napoleon is defeated, so is Laplace. Yes. In other words, it's the next generation, Ampère, Fresnel, It was 1815 Fourier. here. So 1815 to mm. 1830, mm. roughly. Mm -hmm. Ampère, Arago, Fresnel, mm. Fourier, who begin to construct completely different models mm. of heat, light, electricity and magnetism. Mm. Um, light is a wave, says Fresnel. Mm. Um, we do not need to think in Laplacian terms about heat, says yeah. Fourier. Yeah. Um, Ampère gives a model of electrodynamics which is explicitly anti-Laplacian. Mm. Um, so, two lessons from that. One is mathematics is fantastically fruitful yeah. as a tool for physical science. That fruitfulness does not mean, this is a really important lesson of this story, mm. that only one possible interpretation of the physical phenomena is ever possible. Laplacians reckoned that because of their mathematical triumph, because they'd managed to reduce all physical phenomena to a single set of mathematical principles, their authority and their model was secure forever. Fourier and Fresnel, who were both absolutely brilliant mathematicians, mm. invent some new mathematics, mm. Fourier series, mm. precisely, mm -hmm. as part and parcel of a new kind of physics, mm. the physics of waves, mm. Mm. which is so successful that by the end of the 1800s, Lord Salisbury, the great Tory Prime Minister, mm. says that the ether, that's to say the medium in which light travels as a wave, was completely taken over science. Mm. And Joseph Larmor, mathematics professor in Cambridge in 1900, says the whole of physics <laughs> is the science of ether. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Essentially what physics has become yeah. in the three generations after Fourier and Fresnel is a brilliant mathematico-physical analysis of that fluid that fills all space yeah. and carries light waves yeah. and eventually electromagnetic radiation. Mm -hmm. So new mathematics is often made for new physics or new physics often profits from surprising relevant mathematical technologies. Mm -hmm. But that absolutely doesn't mean that once you've married the sophisticated mathematics and the physical model, you stop. Hmm. On the contrary, innovation takes place on both sides. I think it would be hard to give a clearer and punchier summary of the first chapter of my book, The Universe Speaks in Numbers, than Simon does there. It was wonderful to hear him stressing the interplay between mathematics and physics in the early 19th century. 
I asked him, how did all this lead to the theory of electricity and magnetism first set out by the Scot, James Clark Maxwell? The generation of the 1830s and 40s are dominated by this brilliant second generation cohort of French mathematical physicists like Ampère mm. and Fourier had established that there must be something like a rigid ether that fills all space and carries in it transverse waves that are responsible for what we see as light. The problems of working out how these signals could be propagated, how a force could work and yet not be central, um, how forces would take time to propagate through space, unlike gravity seems to do. All these problems came together in the 1850s and early 1860s, and they were seized upon by an absolutely remarkable Cambridge-trained mathematician, James Clark Maxwell, for it is he, was uh, trained at the University of Edinburgh. Yep. He was the son of rather a conservative Scottish lawyer from the borders, um, who built a rather magnificent Gothic house at Glenlair, which unfortunately burned mm. down. And Maxwell was a mathematical physicist of genius, uh, rather than being what you might call a mathematician of genius. In other words, what Maxwell did was to seize upon precisely the right mathematical tools in vector algebra, notably, that he could then use to build physical models of the way in which electricity, light, and magnetism interacted. Mm -hmm. So what he did from the middle of the 1850s through the early 1870s, first at Aberdeen, then at King's College London, and then ultimately at the new physics lab in Cambridge, the Cavendish Laboratory founded in 1871, what he did was to see if it was possible to use this sophisticated mathematics to synthesize those three branches mm -hmm. of physics, electricity, magnetism, and optics. It was well known to his contemporaries that there were interactions between all three. Hmm. Um, and we've already discussed the interaction between electricity and magnetism. What Faraday showed is that a very strong magnetic field changes the way in which light behaves. So there is an interaction between magnetism and optics. What Maxwell does is, with amazing genius, hmm. I mean, extraordinary, turn all those phenomena, all those experimental reports into a relatively simple set of equations. Mm -hmm. He didn't, in fact, publish the four Maxwell equations that we now that we use. Know, yeah. He was using a different kind of mathematics from the one that we would now use to mm -hmm. express them. Mm -hmm. But in his treatise of electricity and magnetism in 1873, he sets out a summary of all the work he's been doing in the 1850s and 60s to construct what he calls a dynamical theory of the electromagnetic field. Mm -hmm. And what he reckons he's shown is that this set of equations are related with a wave equation, an equation that describes the propagation of something through the ether, mm -hmm. from which he derives the velocity mm. of the waves propagated through this electromagnetic substance. Mm -hmm. And it turns out, he realised this in 1861, to be almost exactly the same as the speed of light, mm -hmm. from which he infers, and the formulation is very, very careful, that the ether which is responsible for the behavior of light also is responsible for electromagnetic phenomena. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He doesn't quite predict electromagnetic radiation. What he says is 
the waves that make up light are waves in a substance which is the same substance as the substance responsible for electricity and magnetism. So he brings together electricity and magnetism. It's not till after Maxwell's tragically early death, so after 1879, that Heinrich Hertz produces for the first time solid physical evidence of the existence of waves mm. that are electromagnetic. Mm -hmm. Maxwell, had he lived, would certainly have worked on that project. But again, I think what it shows is, for our purposes, the way in which a great physicist, perhaps the greatest physicist in the 19th century, mm. in my view, mm. is great partly because he knows what maths to use. Just let me conclude, if I may, by asking you something, because he was very interested in new mathematics. Very. Right? Very. He was really ready to look at, you know, knot theory yeah. and, uh, you know, yeah. all sorts yeah. of... Uh, I mean, I think one know, of the most admirable maybe. aspects of Maxwell, apart from the genius, yeah. is <laughs> his playfulness. Yeah, yeah, his poetry. And a lot of yeah. his work in mathematics is to seize on problems because they are enjoyable. Mm. So a lot of Maxwellian mathematics, not theory, for example, his very earliest work yeah. on how to generate figures of a higher order yeah. by taking two pins mm -hmm. and wrapping a string around them mm -hmm. and then using a pencil yeah. to well, he generate... Was, he was a teenager when he did it. Yeah, yeah. Ellipse. Yeah. This yeah. is his very first scientific work. He's yeah. like 14 years yeah. old. Yeah. Um, and being Maxwell, he asked, all right, well, what if you wrap the string around more than once? Yeah. What if you have more pins? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what, mm -hmm. what kinds of figures do you mm -hmm. generate? Mm -hmm. That turns out to be some quite serious mm -hmm. al algebraic geometry mm -hmm. involved there. Similarly with his work on surfaces mm -hmm. and on topology. Mm -hmm. um, it's a deeply ludic, playful intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, he's the only guy I know who's ever been a professor in this University of Cambridge who's set mathematics questions in poetry. <laughs> for, for example. He actually set in the tripod, yeah. did he? Yeah. Really? Um, or who, faced with the problem, which is a really serious problem, of the fact that cats always land on their feet. Yeah. And that's a problem in the physics of rotation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So being Maxwell, he, he works out that the hard case for a cat mm. would be if it has almost no distance to fall. Mm. So rather than yeah, seeing yeah, if yeah, a yeah, yeah. cat dropped from a great height still lands on its feet, what he does is basically just hold it over the ground and then let go yeah. and try to work out what kind of rotatory dynamics is mm. going on. Now, if you think about it for a moment, that's actually not trivially connected with some of the most important maths Maxwell does, which yeah. is tensors. His fascination with how you can mathematically model spin yeah. and curl and, yeah. ro and rotation, yeah. Yeah. his extraordinary co correspondence with Peter Guthrie Tate. Yeah. Really helps, and his interesting quaternions. Yeah, invents yeah. 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 a great yeah. deal yeah. of that vector algebra. All of that is, is there, even in something completely trivial like Let's drop a cat. Yeah. So one reason why I admire him so much is because he's just amazingly lovable. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, the yeah, yeah. curiosity about new mathematics, the use of quaternions, functions with imaginary roots, um, the use of very high-order tensors in vector algebra and the electromagnetism, all of that is deadly serious. Yeah. It, it produces the triumph of classical physics in the last quarter of the 19th century after his death but it's driven very often by i think a curious and playful intelligence just to explore mathematical possibilities mm -hmm.
How about that? James Clark Maxwell said a mathematics exam question in poetry. What a guy. It's important to remember that he described himself as a natural philosopher, not as a theoretical physicist. He was fascinated by philosophical questions and by metaphysical investigations into the meaning of reality, existence, space, time, and topics like that. More than anyone else, in my view, Clark Maxwell laid the foundations of modern fundamental physics when he set out his field theory of electricity and magnetism. Albert Einstein once remarked that he owed more to him than to anyone else. I hope you enjoyed listening to Simon Schaffer. If you want to hear more from him, I thoroughly recommend checking out the website of BBC Radio 4's In Our Time, which contains a wonderful archive of programmes. In many of the programmes about the history of science, Simon is an outstanding expert. Thanks once again to him and to all the other historians of science, including John Heilbrunn, Bruce Hunt, Rob Iliff and Jim Secord, who've taught me so much history in the course of researching The Universe Speaks in Numbers.